The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So I thought tonight, you know, as we go through this program, I'll raise some questions, make a few points, and then check in, see what people's responses are, and then maybe I'll say a little bit more, and then again I'll pose a question or something for us all to reflect on, see if some folks have some comments. Um, and you might have noticed uh, Gabe Keller Flores, our office manager and one of Comgrounds teachers is here tonight and we're exploring um, having our Zoom meeting directly live streamed in real time. So for that reason I've spotlighted myself, but on your screen, if you'd rather have the gallery view, you can, most of you probably know how to, in the upper right, change your view from just seeing me to seeing the whole crowd. So you can make that change if you want. So maybe the first thing for us just to explore together, um, you might have heard this quote from the Buddha, and this is just uh, kind of a rough paraphrase, but that the path, this path of awakening, has a particular taste, the taste of freedom. And that it is the knowing of that taste or the remembering of that taste that really helps to guide the path, how we navigate our path, our life. So, here we are, a bunch of folks who have been walking the path. And what is our experience of this taste of freedom? And I just, you know, as you experience, I, I suggested that we keep in mind or contemplate the direct experience of simplicity during the sit. So maybe that awoke in you or illuminated, oh yeah, this is the taste that I've learned to trust, not just in sitting meditation, but just generally in my life, this this taste of like a movement in the direction of settling or simplicity. Another way that it's talked about in the tradition is that joy of renunciation, which is kind of a provocative phrase for a lot of us, the joy of renunciation, the ease of renunciation, the freedom, because to a large degree, it seems like I'd feel more safe, more free, um, more satisfied if I had what I want. The safety I want, the love that I want, the knowledge that I want. And I collected all of those things and then I could let go of all my wanting because I'd have everything. Some of you might have uh, been there when I gave my talk on Sunday morning, but I shared this passage from Venerable Gotami. She was a Buddhist nun at the time of the Buddha, in fact the first ordained nun at the time of the Buddha, and also was the aunt of the Buddha and raised the Buddha because the Buddhist mother died at childbirth. And so Mahapajapati, but uh, in this discourse, she's referred to as her in, with her family name, Gotami. Like Gotama is the family name 
because it's masculine for the Buddha, and then feminine equivalent is Gotami. So it's this discussion or this uh, interaction between Gotami and the Buddha. And Gotami had gone up to the Buddha and said, you know, could you give me sort of an overview of the path in brief so that, you know, as I'm hearing a lot of practices and teachings from different people, I'll have this sort of overview from you and I'll know what is the path, what is the training, and what isn't the path in training. And so the Buddha gave her the instruction and it's, uh, it's so cool to be able to reflect on it tonight. So I'll share this and then I'll see what other folks have to say. But the, the basic response the Buddha said that when you know from your own direct experience that something, you know, being, the way you're relating, the way you're showing up, your experience is this, that's not the path. But if it's this other uh, number of qualities, then you can, you can be confident. You can categorically know this is the way, this is the training. So here are the, the division between what is definitely not the path in training and what absolutely is the path in training. Passion or dispassion, right? So anything, passion, you know, it's a funny word. We tend to think people who have a lot of passion are like enlivened and really in their life in a, in a wholesome way. But actually the word passion means suffering, as in the passion of Christ, right? The term used uh, at that time before the crucifixion. I remember as a, raised as a Catholic, right? So that that kind of contraction of attachment versus the release of dispassion. Or being fettered, not the way, being unfettered. Living in a way that's all about accumulation versus living in a way that's all about shedding. Now, you don't have to agree with this. We're just kind of hearing it and seeing how it lines up with our own direct experience in life. Self-aggrandizement, you know, all about me, versus modesty, humility. You know, it's interesting, modesty sort of can have, you know, just the way the word is used recently in the last number of decades, can, because it, it almost always now implies that somebody has an affect, like, oh, you know, I'm not going to show up in the moment because I'm modest. But it really means sort of having a, I think that what the Buddha is pointing to is having a realistic understanding. So when we're modest, it means that we understand like whatever good qualities that people are recognizing in me, they're not really me. Those good qualities, whatever they might be, you know, arose because of causes and conditions. Like, I was able to get a pretty good education. Well, that's not really me, but people might recognize something in one of us, or somebody might be particularly beautiful, or particularly strong, or particularly clever, or whatever it might be. But that's, you know, so modesty really means not so much having a negative view of ourselves, it's actually avoiding both the negative and the positive, and just having a realistic view, like whatever good shows up in my life is just a natural arising of causes and conditions. So the humility, modesty, these words in a Buddhist context 
it's not an affect or a stance. It's just a realistic understanding. And of course, it's the same with whatever our weaknesses might be. That's also not personal and not something to use to beat ourselves up or to uh, maintain a self-hatred. Because, well, yeah, that's how it is. And it's not my fault that I'm not good at that or that I'm capable of making those kinds of mistakes. It is the natural unfolding. I have to take responsibility for my strengths and weaknesses, but I don't need to kind of build a sense of self around them. And he has more here. Discontent versus contentment. Entanglement versus being secluded from entanglements. Or a word I like instead of secluded, because secluded always seems to have this, oh, I'm, I'm disconnected from life, so I'm, I don't really have any entanglements. But, it, it, you know, Im, immunity from entanglement, meaning I might be in the realm where there are a lot of hooks, but I'm not taking a hold of any of the hooks. Right? I'm not grabbing onto anything, even though the moment is complex, there are a lot of triggers, I'm feeling the impact of the triggers that are around me, but I know what's going on. This I'm seeing this, it's triggering these emotions, all this is moving, but I'm not taking the bait. So entanglement, seclusion from entanglement, lazy, aroused persistence, being burdened, being unburdened. So if we know, like if we're uh, hearing a teaching or living in a way that is mostly flavored with dispassion, being unfettered, shedding humility or modesty, um, contentedness, seclusion from entanglement, aroused persistence, being unburdened, you may categorically hold, this is the path, this is the training. On the other hand, if your way of being, your way of relating, what's going on in the heart and mind is all about passion, being fettered, accumulating, self-aggrandizement, discontent, entanglement, laziness, and being burdened, then you can categorically hold, this is not the way, this is not the training. So let's just uh, take some time and check in with each other yeah, anybody want to start off? And feel free also to ask questions too. So for people who don't know, the paramis are these beautiful qualities of the heart. And they're really, like in the tradition, the paramis are specifically pointing to qualities of the mind that um, are, are supportive of what we might call ordinary happiness. Even though they sound very spiritual, they deliver, like just in an ordinary way, well-being. And there are things like generosity and um, this capacity to restrain ourselves from harming other beings when we are aware that like how we might speak or act could cause harm. We have that strength of restraint, like, no, I'm not going to do that. I don't want to possibly harm someone and wisdom, and energy, and resoluteness, and equanimity, and kindness, patience. Renunciation is also one of the paramis. 
And another list of the Paramis is very short. It's just Dana, Sila, Bhavana. Those that, some of you maybe were on the year-end retreat and um, Shelley Graff and Winfricky and Stacy McClendon and I, we talked about these three basis of meritorious action. But they're kind of the core paramis of like what actually sets emotion well-being. You want to be happy just on an ordinary level. Well, go from stinginess to living, relating in a more generous way. Go from being negligent in terms of how we might be causing harm to very attuned to how we might be involved in causing harm. Go from not thinking I need to train my mind to really getting interested like how can I train my heart and mind to be present in a stable way. So those are the parmies. So, you, But you know a lot of these lists, Colleen, kind of map onto other lists even though they're distinct lists. So this list here um, isn't really the paramis, but it's definitely an overlap of a lot of those beautiful qualities of heart. But it's really, this list in particular goes to the question that I'm kind of generally posing for us about the taste of freedom. Because a taste of freedom is a specific kind of pleasure. Like there's the pleasure of metta, loving kindness, there's the pleasure of being able to contribute and really support somebody that's deeply satisfying, you know, when we're generous in just the right way, speaking words that are really supportive to someone. We don't have, we're not trying to get anything out of it, we just are just showing up for that person. And that's a really nice feeling. So this is more the level of the parami. But these qualities that I just shared from that sutta with uh, Gotami, talking to the Buddha, it's really different ways about talking about the taste of freedom, which is related to the joy of renunciation. And this is a more subtle teaching from the Buddha, where he's saying, even when you got your life all together, and you're living in a very wholesome way, and the world is reflecting back to you your wholesomeness. Everybody loves you because you're generous, because you're kind, because you're balanced, because you're this, because you're that. Still, there's a deeper happiness than that ordinary happiness of well-being, living in harmony, living in a generous way. There's an even more profound happiness. And you know, this is where the word Nibbana or Nirvana comes in. But it's really this particular taste of renunciation, of letting go, of putting down. You know, at the end of the set, I just invited us to explore the taste of cessation, of letting everything go, being willing to die, allowing everything to end. doesn't mean things aren't going to arise, but we're really keying in, tuning in, to the dropping the load. And that's really what this list is more about. Thanks for the comment and question, Colleen. Who'd like to go next? Other experiences you'd like to share with the group? Yeah, yeah, I know that's, that's a powerful sharing. Die before you die, that's a common phrase in Buddha, the sort of Buddhist tradition. And, uh, 
And a funnier note, some of you my age will remember, I think I was in high school when I saw Harold and Maude, some of you remember that movie, and a younger man falls in love with an older woman and uh, eventually gives her a ring, I forget if, if it's an engagement ring or just a ring, but anyway, she looks at it, very appreciative, really letting it land, and then she throws it into the lake. <laughs> I always know where it will be. <laughs> And it, there's something about that, those of you with kids, like really seeing that the child, in a way, time is a construct. So in a way, whatever you have, whatever that relationship is where that child is dependent on you and you're really the mother or the father, that's already broken, like the mug or the cup that Amber's mentioning. That child's already going to be an adult, probably. This life is already destined to end. And it really changes. This is a great line from Thich Nhat Hanh where he says, you know, when you're having an argument with your honey, just imagine them 300 years from now when there will be dust mostly, the bones, the body. It's really hard when we are incorporating that it's already broken, it's already ended. That's part of the scene. You don't have something without the end of that something. Other thoughts? Yeah, and uh, it corresponds to one of the suttas, um, I forget exactly the context, but uh, uh, people were wanting to draw the Buddha into an argument. And, uh, you know, th he said something like, the world may have quarrels with me, but I don't have quarrels with the world. Now it's easy for us to misunderstand that, and, and this you may have more to say about this, Marianne, but because there may be some situations where being silent isn't really the appropriate response. So could we, like, if we had particular responsibilities where we had to speak or it was appropriate for us to speak, Maybe we could even speak, but maintain that feeling you had this morning of not having to pick up the drama, not having to be in that, that uh, binary good versus bad, who's right kind of struggle, but still be engaged with responsibilities, still be a good citizen or whatever, still vote, still advocate and do whatever is needed to promote justice in the world for those who maybe are being mistreated. But not feel in conflict with people who think we're wrong. And that's such an interesting thing. And I think one of the things that fuels the, the divisiveness in our country generally is um, wherever we might be politically, it's the demonization of the other side, as opposed to just doing what's useful politically, socially, so not holding back if something needs to be done to, uh, you know, if we can, if it's possible to sort of set good in motion. But why do we need to demonize the other side? And where I see this a lot, just coming myself from a progressive point of view, um, liberal point of view, is how acceptable humor, mainstream humor, comedy, is 
and demonizing and really belittling and being mean-spirited. But in the context of it's acceptable, well, that's a little like, why, why would that be acceptable? Well, because we've collectively, each of us in our own political camp, have demonized the other side. So within our camp, we've already thrown the people out of our heart. So because they're not people anymore, not in our heart anymore, we can say whatever we want about them. And I think that's, that's uh, yeah, just uh, eats away at everything that is of value. Any other thoughts, Marianne, before we move on? Yeah, yeah. And speech is a prag and like what to say and what not to say is a pragmatic thing. Like we don't just speak the truth, we speak the truth when it's helpful to speak the truth. It doesn't mean that we lie, but sometimes like truth needs to be spoken in the right way at the right time. So it actually plants seeds of healing and well-being and justice and all the good things that we want in the world. Because truth can be used, we can say something that in a sense is true, but we're really saying it to hurt the other person or embarrass the other person or something like that or belittle. Who would like to go next? Yeah, no, it's a good question, Jessica. And I think, you know, when the most important thing is we keep bringing it back to our own mind and heart and, uh, and not postponing our freedom. Like, let's say the world is sinking, like you said, the, the foundation is really off. And be, as long as the foundation is off, uh, there are going to be serious problems and injustice. So let's just say that's an accurate analysis of the situation at hand here. And, uh, but in a way, um, we have to take responsibility like uh, for being free where we are right now in this imperfect world so that our analysis and our engagement isn't coming from our own panic and our own fear, self-survival, right? Because that's the predicament we're in. That may be what your analysis is analyzing, is that because we've all been, all of our survival instincts have been triggered and we're basically at war with each other, whether it's the elites against the poor, or the right against the left, or male against female, or white against non-white, or whatever it might be, these power struggles that, are, that exist, that are very real, and a cause for so much suffering. And so I think the way out is for us to take responsibility, how do I in my own life right now, without waiting for social political change, how do I step out of that? How do I create a foundation that is trustworthy so that we're basically committing to modeling the freedom we sense might be possible for the society, for the community. We start modeling it right in our own life and then in concentric circles in some of our relationships with dear ones. Because if it really works, then the modeling is going to be a powerful 
uh, force for change, I think. Because otherwise we just get fixated on, even if we're really skillful, that you're in the way of progress, basically. And you're the, you're the cancer we got to get rid of. And, it, and it's, there are really two different paths, just to kind of be grossly simplistic, that are wholesome, deeply wholesome. One path is to commit all of our life energy to uh, addressing those who are suffering. So the, the path of like activism, um, really wanting to uh, directly put my energy in, in uprooting injustice, things like that. And the other path is, uh, it's kind of, I mean, possibly I think people can argue this, but from my point of view, from a bigger perspective, like of really understanding how freedom, the, the deep release of my heart, will make, will be a bigger contribution than me committing myself to social change. Now, I'm not, I'm just sort of simplifying like one or the other. So even if we take the spiritual route, doesn't mean we're not engaged in activism. It just means that this is the lens through which we do our activism and we make our food. It's the lens we do everything, as opposed to justice or making the world a better place. And, you know, I think it, when we think about the stories from Buddhism as myth in a wholesome sense, then maybe some of you know, but uh, at the time of the Buddha's birth, uh, the king, his father, you know, not really a king, I think more scholars think now he was just sort of like, a, they had these clans, these areas that were run by a, sort of the main family, and the father, the Buddhist father, was sort of the head of the family that ran this local community. So the chieftain or something like that. But anyway, he consulted an astrologer, and the astrologer said about the Buddha, you know, he's either going to be a world-turning ruler or he's going to be an awakened one. And, and when we hear that story, we think like, oh, that would be bad to be a world-turning ruler. But really what he's saying is like, either he's, he's going to do good one of two ways. He's either going to be this um, benevolent dictator and really lead from this really benevolent place of justice, or he's going to put all his energy into spiritual awakening. And, uh, and I think that when we're balanced, we feel both tugs. We should feel both tugs. And a lot of it will be karma, like our, what's already in motion in our heart. And uh, in terms of what direction we go, both in any one moment, but just generally in our lives. Both are good things to do. We need people to run for political office. Like, what a thankless job these days. But we need people to be engaged. We need people to get in the streets sometimes. We need people to speak truth to power. And we need more people committed to awakening. That's my <laughs> opinion. Other thoughts? Thanks, Jessica. Yeah, very powerful sharing, Paul. Thank you. And, you know, even though it's a little weird, the word cessation, it's really good for us uh, people who've been practicing for a while 
to just take that up, what is the Buddha pointing to with that word, Naroda, the cessation, the ending, the putting down the load? And how might that word point to something that's here and now, always in our experience? So it's not something metaphysical, but there, there, there is something about our direct subjective experience of things ending that we've been missing, we haven't really attuned to, but when we do attune to it, it has this flavor of peace. And that's really the, the, the happiness of Nibbana is really this happiness, the peace of understanding the ending. But it doesn't, it doesn't somehow restrict or take away the arising of the next experience. But we really want to get to know how things end. There's something very peaceful in that, which is, it's actually surprising. People who have done more formal contemplation of death, it's actually very peaceful to contemplate the ending. But you have to check it out. <laughs> Thanks again, Paul. Other thoughts people have? And imagine if, you know, we have culturally a lot of ceremonies and rituals for the births, the beginning, the beginning of a marriage. We have some for endings, but imagine if every time we really highlighted, like even high school graduation, like put as much emphasis on what's ending as what's beginning. Excuse me, the rituals would be really, I think, more powerful. And we can do that. Not, nobody's stopping us from doing that. You know, the year that's ending, all the things that ended this year, all the things that are possibly beginning as we move into the new year. Still have time to hear from a few more folks. Yeah. Thanks so much, Megan. I think it was Ajahn Sushito, he's a British Buddhist monk. I think it was him at least. Um, but anyway, about, you know, instead of there being a one of me, there are just these different patterns. And he said it's a little bit like a city council where you have different people who sit on the city council and they, each of them have their own personality, strengths and weaknesses. Some might be very obnoxious. But it really depends who has the mic in the meeting. And this is the thing, we can't make ourselves have a different personality or a different group of committee members. But who we pay attention to, it's like uh, who we empower by just awareness. Oh, yeah, there's this part of my mind. I see this a lot. You know where I see it a lot is just all the work I've been trying to do in the last number of years, uh, now for a while, just around racism and just understanding my own whiteness and my racial conditioning. And I so I'm much more honest with myself about getting triggered, as white people do in the particular way that white people get triggered around race and privilege and being male on top of it. And But I'm not afraid of that kind of racial and, and gender conditioning that I have. 
I see it so much more. And I see the sort of arrogance of it and the privilege of it and the aggrievement of it. I see all of those things that I could easily, you know, point my finger when other people are acting it out as like, oh my God. But I see it in me, but I don't give I don't give that personality pattern the microphone. I don't act it out. And I think that that like you were you were sharing is very powerful to realize we can't change how we've been conditioned, certainly not quickly, um, but we can learn to live with it. <laughs> and we have to learn to live with it, and we can learn to be free by just seeing, oh yeah, that's, that's just that pattern that got set in motion through so many different causes and conditions, and I'm so glad to see it. And I'm so glad not to give it the microphone and not to have to act it out. Or another example of this is just any of you who are in a long-term relationship. And, you know, because of what happens in long-term relationships, there are times when you want you hate the person or you want to get even with the person, get revenge or whatever. And because you know each other so well, you can really hurt the other person. But even though that motivation might be there to kind of get revenge or whatever, but wisdom and awareness can see it. Oh yeah, that's just a committee member. I don't trust that committee member and I'm certainly not going to give that committee member the, the microphone, right? And we don't have to be embarrassed or ashamed of all these different people who are on the committee because <laughs> it's not personal. We have time for one more sharing if there's somebody who would like to uh, share a little bit of, of what you've been learning in life. Yeah, and it's a beautiful place to end, Sally, because it's really that turning point that you're describing is exactly, we really want to get interested in the flavor that Sally's pointing to, where our mind turns from seeking satisfaction and happiness by getting and having and holding to beginning to intuit the happiness of not needing, not being dependent on getting. It doesn't mean you don't open the fridge and get something to eat, but, but really getting curious about the flavor of, I may or may not open the fridge, but I feel the freedom of not needing, not being dependent on having that sense experience of eating something I like to eat. So I may get it or I may not get it, but I'm, I'm really curious and interested in keeping in mind the flavor of non-dependence not expecting the things of the world to be something I can, uh, yeah, build happiness on. So it's the happiness of letting go versus the happiness of accumulation or having or holding. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.